Welcome to I Spit on Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where I put down my bloody knitting needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. On this episode, we are taking our first look into a favorite subgenre of ours, Italian horror. The films for discussion will be opera and stage fright. So pick your poison and listen on, if you dare. So, Italian horror, Jess, we've probably been looking yes. forward to this since we started this project, I feel like. Yeah, I'm pretty sure like one of the things that when we sat down and wrote out everything we could ever talk about on the podcast, Italian horror was like a must. It was like, it was like the first or second thing we wrote down, We're like Italian horror. Most definitely. There's so many different aspects of Italian horror and different genres within that subgenre we could look at. And we're going to for sure 100% take a look at everything we possibly can. You know, Giallo's is going to come up, maybe zombies. There's so much to talk about. But within our research, we actually found an interesting link between opera and stage fright, which we'll get into a little bit later. But we thought this might be a fun duo of Italian horror movies to look into. Yeah, I 100% agree. I can't wait until we are able to talk about giallo films as a subgenre of horror and Italian horror on its own. So now we're going to get into a bit of a brief history of Italian horror. So I have picked up recently a wonderful little hardcover book called Euro Horror by Ian Olney, and it's been so fantastic to start reading over this past month. So it looked at the history of Italian horror overall, but of course Italian horror was in that. So between the 1950s to the 1980s, there were a huge amount of horror films created in Europe. There's reasons behind that, such as, you know, the post-war recovery of the film industry. There was an international bump of hit interest in horror films and also the decline of the old Hollywood studio system. So European horror films, Italy included, were quite different from British or North American films and horror films. They have a wide diversity of influence from all of like their own influences culturally and then all the surrounding countries because in Europe everybody's very close together. So it's kind of a mishmash of, you know, cultural differences and similarities that they put together. So they mix together surrealism, romanticism, you know, the decadent traditions along with pulp literature, film serials, old world horror films, and sexuality. You'll see a lot of experimentation with color, sound, cinematography, editing, and music. The blend of horror and eroticism. And they valued the quote-unquote pictorial, the excessive, and the irrational. They explored the boundaries of sex and violence, which was rarely seen in British or in American films during the 50s to the 80s. Also, European horror, as well as Italian horror, can be seen as kind of tasteless. And like I said, Italian horror was not exempt from that. In the 60s and 70s, Italy saw a fast-growing economy, new cultural attitudes towards consumerism and sexuality, and issues with Hollywood, like their inflexible structures and their studio system and high production costs. So we started seeing a lot of you know, movies like the B-horror movies, you know, short production timelines, low budgets, I'm looking at you, full moon. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, in Europe, you saw a lot of ripoffs and copycat type movies that were already popular in North America and overall. It was a really safe movie making idea, but then they kind of put their own style into it because it was, you know, in Europe. And also, when you think of, you know, Europe overall, but Italy, it's a place of, you know, fashion and history and it's beauty. Think of art films. You don't really associate Europe with horror films. However, Italian horror has pretty much directly influenced a lot of our favorite horror films. Mauro Bava's Bay of Blood to Friday the 13th original. Bava's Planet of the Vampires influenced Alien. The beloved Giallo influenced the North American slasher era of the 1970s to 80s. In the beginning with Bava's The Girl Who Knew Too Much in 1963 and Blood and Black Lace in 1964. Some of the narratives in the films can be seen as kind of outdated. If you kind of look back at them as overall kind of cycle of movies, they recycle a lot of the same motifs with regards to characters, settings, and themes. Uh, this book was fantastic because it had this huge paragraph of like a hundred different words Examples, bondage, the airport, fashion models, impalement, insanity, lesbianism, and more. So they kind of grab a handful of those ideas and make a movie out of it. (laughs) Um, But, you know, Italian horror produced a variety of unique directors, actors, and even subgenres within the horror subgenre. Agreed. So in the 1960s and 70s, really Italian horror came from the Italian exploitation film market, which often exceeded Hollywood's output in annual film production. And this was actually really important because for Italy, with all the cultural changes that happened after the post-war era, especially in cinema, they really relied on a transnational audience. So you can't simply just define Italian horror movies that are made in Italy because the Italian industry was more concerned about this international, this lucrative international market more than their domestic one. Because the Italian audience themselves, they were more, they enjoyed more comedies and dramas and weren't really into genre type material, which was what horror films are. They're of a, of a genre. So most Italian horror films at the time were made cheaply and poorly, and they were more just considered a more populist entertainment and not really an art form. And so we call these films the so bad that they're good. So these are directors that we know as like Joe D'Amato and Bruno Matti. So with horror, Italian horror itself, coming from the exploitation market, these films were low budget, they were lowbrow, associated with imitation, excess, and crass commercialism. So with horror, Italian horror becoming more of a transnational media product uh, since the 1950s, the first modern Italian horror film was Riccardo Frida's I Vampia. In 1957, and this was a homegrown horror genre developed under cultural similarities between Italy and countries with horror films that they're imported from. So, with horror not really being taken as a serious genre in Italy and being produced by its own countrymen, many Italian horror filmmakers had to anglicize their own names and and or anglicize like pseudonyms to pass off their films as either British or American made. So for an example, you had famous horror director Mario Bava. He often went by the credit of of John M. Old. And these were to try and pass his films off as more foreign than they were uh, Italian. However, with Italian horror films, they have a very recognizable style to them. 
So we see from the 1960s and onwards that we see a lot of Italian horror filmmakers using cinemas uh, for for producing and sending out their films out to the public. They use a lot of dubbing of these horror films to achieve that transnational visibility. But when you sit down and you actually look at the history of the Italian horror movement, they're actually broken up in decades. Where we see in the 1950s and early 60s, we see the era of Mario Bava, where there is a very heavy Gothic influence in Italian horror. Then you get uh, from the 1970s to 1980s, you get Dario Argento's with the popularization of the Giallo film, which then goes on to influence American slasher films. And then we get in the 1980s, Lucio Fulci's era of explicit gore. And this was the beginning, this is what people considered the beginning of the genre's creative exhaustion and then eventually the demise of Italian horror in the 1990s. So when you get directors like Mario Bava and Dario Argento, who had been very celebrated for elevating Italian horror within an exploitation genre to produce what they almost consider pieces of art. Because when we look at the, the Italian horror film, what we're seeing here is these crazy stories built around these very spectacular set pieces and they're more about the scenery and the imagery and the music than they really are about being character based and plot driven. So as Kelly uh, mentioned earlier, in the 1970s, we get the rise of the giallo, which is highly violent and stylized murder mysteries inspired by Anglo-American novels. And this is where we see the rise of Argento, who moved away from the supernatural gothic horror of Bava to more horrific serial killers in modern Italy. We see that these films, Italian, a lot of Italian horror, often is depicting more of sadism, perversion, and stylistic excess than we see in more Anglo-American horror. And what also differentiates Italian horror from a regular American horror is, not, is the style sets, but also that, that Italian directors went further than a lot of British and American directors, where there's higher levels of violence, higher levels of gore, higher levels of sex. And often in a lot of these films, there's issues of misogyny, homophobia, and racism addressed in them. So what's really interesting is within these films that we see, like they're very stylized, they address like their the sets are amazing, beautiful, the music is awesome. A lot of the times too, the there's no character development, plots don't make any sense. There are some mis misogynistic tendencies to these films. There's a lot of some films have some problematic ideas to them, but they have received cult status among Anglo-American fans. This was largely due to the 1980s with the rise of the home video era. So when people were able to access these films and watch them in their homes via video VHS. And this has allowed for Italian horror in itself to persist throughout the ages and grow a significant cult following. When you look at the uh, our Twitter account and we were posting all month about Italian horror, I did a bunch of Twitter polls. I feel like in the last year and a month or two, you know, I feel like our Italian horror month has brought out so many fans. Our, I feel like our social media blew up this month. So many passionate fans of the genre, so many opinions. They love talking about all their favorite films. And I mean, there's some very intense opinions out there. I mean, a lot of dudes. I don't think any women came forward, sadly, to discuss their favorite Italian movies. But people are crazy about this uh, subgenre. I mean, we love it. It's so truly unique. So, you know, it does have an incredible, loyal and intense following. Yeah, I will, I will really agree too. Like, <laughs> Like Kelly said, like our social media was exploding with the amount of people just being like, yes, Italian horror, watch this movie, talk about this movie, do this movie. And like, I wish we could do them all. 
we will eventually we will get to the all of our favorites and believe me it was really hard when kelly and i were sitting down talking about like what films are we gonna do what should we focus on should we focus on like giallos or should we look at the supernatural gothic or should we look at fulci and the more gory stuff who knows there's so much to choose from (laughs) so looking at you know italian horror films you know specifically they're very sensational they're big they're bold they're full of spectacle you know there's a lot of um you think of Suspiria, they, you know, the movies create audio and visual mo- moments which can interrupt the plot and doesn't add to it. Like Jess said, it's all about spectacle and performance and visual effects and music than it is about plot. We all know Italian horror films on, aren't big on plot. And we can forgive it. We can forgive that genre yeah. for it. It's part of its charm. Especially if it has an amazing soundtrack. <laughs> like, you, if it's got an amazing soundtrack... I don't care. I'll just watch it just to listen to the music. Jess is in. It's it's just, it's incredible. It's so incredibly unique that it, it's been such a really interesting month. So Isabel Christina Pindo wrote Recreational Terror, Women and the Pleasures of Horror Film Viewing. So she was saying that European films or Italian horror films are, quote, elaborately staged mayhem. They showcase the ruined body as spectacle. For sure, a hundred percent. So we see extremely graphic violence, murder, and torture, but it's so beautifully done. You know, it's our stylized violence. Uh, these films are truly in excess. Kristen Thompson, who wrote The Concept of Cinematic Excess, says that, again, these films emphasize a spectacle instead of story, engaging viewers viscerally instead of involving them narratively. I feel like that's like the epitome of Italian horror right there. Mm. Going a little bit of my taboo terrors here, but Makita Brotman defined cinema vomitif which is a subgenre of horror or exploitation films that wants to arouse, quote, strong sensations in the lower body, nausea, repulsion, weakness, faintness, and a loosening of the bowel or bladder control, normally by way of graphic scenes featuring the byproducts of bodily detritus like vomit, excrement, viscera, brain tissue, and so on. So that, combined with sex essentially is the epitome of Italian horror. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So an interesting tidbit to kind of round out this um, brief history of Italian horror was an article I came across that was talking about fashion in Italian horror. And I thought this was really interesting because one of the things about watching a lot of these Italian horror films is everyone looks so goddamn good. (laughs) Like, not only are they so good looking but they are dressed really well like not only just like main actors even like our like our secondary extras and stuff like that and so in doing this research i'm coming across this article of italian horror they talk about how in reality there has always been a relationship between horror films and the fashion industry particularly high fashion and in the 1960s and 70s while Italian horror was a very new industry in Italy, it really boiled it boiled up by Hollywood investments. It, it was because that the Italian uh, society was eager to break away from their fascist and religious repression and, and roots. So that's why we get like this emergence of Italian of uh, the giallo um, with uh, Italian thrillers and horrors that ooze style because it's all about breaking taboos. 
And also this idea that an Italian horror film is like a crazy funhouse mirror of American pop culture. And which is really interesting in reading this article about how when you have these Italian giallos or these Italian horror movies, what they're really trying to say is like, oh, so we think American culture is like this. So we're going to reflect it back to you, but give it like this Italian twist to it. And it's like, oh, that's crazy. Americans never look that good. Like, this is great. <laughs> but wow. And it was like, and it's because to them, Italian filmmakers saw America as a land of color. They saw it as a land of excess and that, you know, it was very erotic and that, it wasn't, and in America, they weren't bound by the same society restraints that they had for so many years, particularly these religious restraints. So when you get these films by Mario Bava and Dario Argento, who are considered the masters of Italian giallo and Italian horror, you get this idea of high fashion in Italy inspired by their horror. So Bava's Blood and Black Lace really established a visual template for Italian horror, and Argento then took it to another level with using his clothing and the interior designs that were really integral to the mood of a horror film. So, for example, like the film Suspiria, like everyone talks about the uses of color, the uses of imagery, the uses of set pieces that really heighten the intense feelings of the film, but at the same time too, you also look at the outfits that Susie and Sarah and they're all wearing, and it just kind of adds that extra element to how the story is being told. And Argento himself, he was known to work very closely with designers and fashion experts to construct what they call his bizarre worlds. And it was noted that it's not just how his protagonists and antagonists were dressed, but he would also dress, make sure his extras were dressed very well. And that there was a lot of attention paid to detail in the clothing worn, and that everyone in his films looked like that people came off catwalks of the 1970s high fashion shows. So Argento himself, he was known to work uh, very closely with designer Armani, and particularly when it came to uh, doing his film Phenomena, which starred the lovely Jennifer Connelly when she was quite young. But another really interesting fact was because his films were so popular and Italian horror had such an inspiration to a lot of high fashion in Italy that some of these directors were asked to actually direct fashion catwalks. And so Dario Argento in 1986, he was asked by a small Italian fashion label, uh, Trisardi, to direct one of their catwalks. And so what he ended up doing was he incorporated horror aesthetics and micro narratives into each of the group of models as they walked onto the stage and he even faked an on-stage murder to the point where they actually had the body rolled up in polythane and then dragged off the stage by other models to really add that atmosphere and that feeling of intensity <laughs> in that fashion that show. That is incredible right? and I have to say very Italian. Very much so. Very Italian, right? And that's what makes them so interesting is because they're so unique in the way they portray themselves and put themselves out into the world that each one I find has a different way of kind of sitting with you, like from one film to the next. And I think it has like more of an impact for me. Like when I watched a film like Suspiria, I was once away, like immediately like drawn to it. And I watched like a film like Deep Red and I love it. And it, I just, I remember that film more because of just the attention to detail from not just like the clothing and set pieces, uh, from the set pieces and the music, but to the clothing as well and how our actors are dressed. So I think that's just a really interesting idea that Italian horror, while it had a small, brief couple decades, it inspired a lot of high fashion in Italy. Very, very interesting. I love that you found that. That's that's really amazing. So, we are <laughs> going to state who our favorite Italian horror director is. And for me, I ended up being able to watch a handful of brand new movies this, this month, which is really amazing. And it still stands as it always has been. And my favorite Italian horror director is Lucio Fulci. I love 
how grim his movies are, how gory. I find them very compelling. The music, are oh, it's always wonderful. And frankly, just how incredibly nihilistic all of his films are. All the ones I've seen so far anyways, and I can 100% get behind that. <laughs> that is that is great and not surprising that is uh Fulci's definitely up your alley being the master of gore himself uh quote from kelly's taboo terror most recent <laughs> one godfather of gore <laughs> godfather of gore i'm sorry oh my goodness <laughs> i did read her i did read her post <laughs> excuse me <laughs> <laughs> Well, for me, I think it's pretty obvious, and I think I made my opinion quite known in the social media circles, but I've always been a fan of Dario Argento. I have seen work by Mario Bava, and I do appreciate what he's done. I do, I really enjoy the whole gothic narrative that he pulls out. And I have seen Zombie by Lucio Fulci. I do need to see more Lucio Fulci. I did not get enough uh, get to enough chances to watch what I all of it what I wanted to watch this month. But I end up getting to watch more Argento films that I've got to see, and I do like his style. I do like how stylistic he is. I really do like the attention to detail he brings to his films in terms of gore, his scenery, the uses of color. I do think that some of his plots are problematic. They don't make any sense. <laughs> but sometimes I can forgive that totally. based upon how imaginative and how gripping I get myself caught into watching the film and just just wanting to see, you know, who is it going to be? Who is going to be the killer? Sometimes I think, I'm like, I think I know it. And then I forget. Like, I've seen Deep Red, like, three or four times now, and I always seem to forget who the killer is <laughs> until at the end I'm like, oh, shit, yes! I would say it's kind of forgettable, so... <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. So now we're going to get into the first film, Stage Fright. Mind! One! Kill her! Kill her! Find 
first time watch for the podcast, which is really exciting because, again, I love Italian horror, so bring on the new watches. How about you? It was the same for me. Um, I think, like you said, we when we were sitting down researching films we want to watch, this came up and we're like, yes, let's do it. So first time watch as well. Excellent. So what did you like about it? What did I like about it? I liked... That doesn't sound promising. <laughs> <laughs> It's not that I didn't dislike this film. I felt it was long. Okay, so that's enough. that's one thing like about Italian horror that I sometimes don't always appreciate is that sometimes they're too long, where I'm just like, this movie could have been shorter. But what I did like about it was the aesthetic of the killer was really interesting. I like the fact that he was wearing that owl head all the time, and that was really creepy. Like, I would find that really, um, really disturbing as well. The music was an interesting choice. But it was definitely a film that, in a way, I kind of almost was almost kind of forgettable, except for certain scenes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there was some interesting stuff that came up to that. I definitely will talk about when we get to it later. But yeah, I agree. I thought the movie was okay. I thought like it was a pretty standard kind of slasher, Italian slasher type movie. I didn't love it. I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I did find it. It was all right. Um, I like the music, and again, I agree. I love the killer's design. And honestly, I thought the ending pretty much made up for how relatively average I thought the movie overall was, because I thought the ending was suspenseful and interesting and beautiful. That moment, that total murder tableau on the stage, the feathers blowing. Oh, I was like, yeah. what is... Oh, this movie just turned around for me. That was stunning. Also, the killer was the only one that was nice to that cat. <laughs> uh, right? Right? The only that one. Cat? And poor cat Lucifer. He was just, you know, just doing his thing. He's just being a cat and everyone was a jerk to him. But he was like, I like you, cat. You're going to sit among me and my murder, my murder group. Totally. <laughs> just group stroking that black cat. I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, in terms of like the ending, though, so like because there's kind of like two endings because we kind of think it ends yeah. and then it, at the end we see the killer again and I'm just like what? <laughs> I didn't like that. I did not like that. To me that didn't make any sense. Like why would she go back to the scene of the crime just to get her freaking watch yeah. and then he pops up again and then like you see them shoot the killer and then he like winks at the end. I was like oh no. <laughs> Please. Let's, I hope this is not like a like a popcorn situation and if anyone knows about the film popcorn it was in the 1990s they tried to do like a they tried to make the killer like the next jason or friday or something like that i'm just like oh i hope they're not doing that (laughs) it didn't no it didn't so thank goodness uh what didn't you like about it I think kind of like the way I described it was a the pseudo mm-hmm. ending. Mm-hmm. There, there is some obviously there's some things in the film that I'm just like no one's gonna actually do that, right? Like they're not actually like it was interesting because there's elements of what they were doing in terms of human nature. I'm like okay, I could see people acting that way and getting that pretty great. And there was other times I'm just like that seems a little yeah. much. Yeah. Oh, the, okay, so the scene where the woman gets pulled in half and, like, literally, like, the killer is holding her at the bottom yeah. and the one guy's pulling her from the top and she gets ripped in half. I'm like, really? He's not, like, he's not, there's no superhuman strength to him. No, That's not no, possible. That's <laughs> not practical. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so some of the, um... Some of the kills were all like, while they were good, they were also very, like, that's a li- that's stretching it. That's definitely just giving us a gore so we can have our gore for this. That's stretching it? Was that a pun? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was. 
Uh, for me, I you know, I thought the kills overall weren't truly exceptional. The pacing, I agree. Holy crap, so much Italian horror could be like 20 to 30 minutes shorter. I'm looking at you, Argento. Holy fuck, have your movie at least <laughs> 70 minutes only. And uh, yeah, the acting was, you know, it was fine. It was all right. <laughs> But yeah. like, yeah, mainly what stood out to me was the killers, the aesthetic, and the ending. In terms of looking at Italian horror, a couple of themes that came up, is particularly in stage fright and opera, were these ideas of stylized violence. So Kelly's already kind of brought this term up earlier when she was introducing Italian horror, and I'm going to go into a little more detail kind of about the psychology around the idea of stylized violence. To really say like stylized violence is... It's kind of like another say is it's a way of making violence kind of looking cool in films. And primarily what we see in these days are films kind of like Pulp Fiction or John Wick. These can be considered films of stylized violence. But there are three things that when it comes to the idea of stylized violence or making uh, violence in films look cool or kind of like a beautiful artistry to them is people's feelings towards them because people think that when you're making violence look good that you're perpetuating violence and that you're saying that violence is cool and that it's a you know a great thing to do but in reality it's it's, as how the viewer engages in watching it that with that that those those scenes and those violent scenes in films and so when i was looking into some of the research about stylized violence there came up some good psychological theories about this and how people address the concept of stylized violence so the first one is looking at detachment and desensitization and violence so this is a person's ability to recognize what you are watching is not real and that the depiction of violence is fictionalized So the viewer is able to detach themselves to allow themselves not to become distressed or have any disgust about what they're watching. That they see what they're watching, they know that this is not real and that it is not really, really impacting them and that the person who is experiencing that violence is fine, that this is an actor. So they're able to detach themselves and it doesn't lead to any kind of cognitive dissonance. So they don't feel that they're having inconsistent thoughts or beliefs or attitudes about violence. And this is not going to impact myself as a viewer, my behavioral decisions and my attitude change towards other people and towards using violence against others. So when it comes to being desensitized, so so people say when you watch a, a film that has a lot of violence in them, and this happens to a lot with horror fans, is that we tend to become desensitized so that the more content exposure leads us to a more immunity to violence in film and yet but and so when people think that we are desensitized that it doesn't knock that yet it does not create someone to want to inflict violence on others in real life would not have a response to to witnessing violence in life so in saying that when we're saying that horror fans or people who watch stylized violence are desensitized to violence that if they were to see something happen in real life that they wouldn't know what to do to help someone which i think is completely inaccurate that's i know as myself like i watch a horror film and i'm like okay i know that this violence this choreographed scene is just a scene in a film it's not true it's not real but if I saw something like that happening on the street I know I would be impacted by it and it would definitely make me want to react and do something so the other uh, concept when it comes to stylized violence is cessation seeking so people looking for more arousal so this is the emotional and chemical reaction to watching stylized violence and this is caused like a visceral reaction to the violence causing an adrenaline adrenaline response that people may abhor or they may enjoy. So I'm, I'm saying that when you watch a horror film, we get the same reaction. So we get that same visceral reaction when we experience fear in watching a horror film, and we get that adrenaline response. 
So sometimes people are attracted to watching violence because of what they are anticipating can happen and then they get that jolt of cathartic action. When I, for an example, in the film Stage Fright, the whole time we're wanting this final girl. We want the her to get her revenge on this killer who is traumatizing her and when she finally is able to shoot him and shoot at him, it feels good because we're getting that cathartic release. There's also an element of beauty in what we're watching. So we want to see how these actors and these directors are able to make something like a murder or violence against others to be haunting or beautiful. And this kind of tends to throw people off as they experience a physical response to that action. And I'm going to say this in terms of the film opera. We are going to talk about this. There's a scene in the film where we see the killer kind of get his just desserts. And I'm experiencing this when the birds are attacking him and because we earlier had seen some uh, vicious attack against these birds, these ravens, and so we're kind of getting to see that they're, um, they get to attack him back and it's violence against him, but it also feels very cathartic. And then the final theory when it comes to silence violence is schadenfreude, which is a German psychological theory about why do people derive joy from the suffering or pain of others. And so this is where people have a tendency to feel ha happy when they hear about other people's misfortune. <laughs> so in a film, when we see people who have inflicted wrongdoing on others or harm on others and they get their just desserts, we're like, yes, the consequences are good for this person, that, that this is a result of their actions, so this is a result, so that killer getting shot or stabbed or electrocuted by our final girl or by our final survivors, they deserved it and we're happy about this. So when it comes to enjoying violence in films, this doesn't translate as actually wanting to cause real life violence and then there's no way to watching violent content will actually turn someone violent in life. So I'm just trying to address the idea that in horror films, in action films, where we see a lot of violence and we're seeing it made up to look nice and pretty and beautiful, which is really known in Italian horror films, is that it actually looks good based upon the mixture of scenery and score and how things are being acted out, that this does not also want people to cause violent things to happen in real life. It's just a way of getting some kind of formal release. And so I got this one quote from an author who was really against stylized violence in films, but however, they brought out this one really quote that I thought was really interesting and that I wanted to share was, I don't know if violence needs to be ugly. And as Dyer argues, but I think that there is a moral imperative for violence in art to have weight, to look at the world and reflect something truthful back to us. And that's how I feel what stylized violence can do for us is that even though it looks really pretty and really beautiful and a lot of work has been put into that scene to make it look attractive, it is also performing a moral imperative to let us know that this is still not good and this is there's still some truth to why this violence is not a good thing and why you feel the way you feel when you're watching this. That is a great quote and it reminds me of my latest Taboo Terrors release called The Sixth Sense uh, where it, I kind of talk about the fact that if there's no kind of background or reason behind the violence and gore that you're seeing, it just becomes exploitative. And mm, yeah. a lot of this violence, we're particularly talking about Italian horror, there is a lot of interesting thematic elements to Italian horror if you sit back and start reading some more about these films. So it's not just for the sake of, you know, being violent and gory and weird. There's a lot going on behind that. So... You know, it's a really, really interesting genre. I have to say, my top three favorite action films are The Guest, John Wick, 
and Drive. Mm. Talk about stylized violence. Those movies are slick as fuck. <laughs> yeah. No, and I agree. And in this article that I read about these uh, different theories, John Wick was brought up in multiple times. And I was like, yes, I agree. Because when I watched John Wick, I was like, yes, kill every single one of those motherfuckers every way you can because of what they did. <laughs> they deserve well, to die. There's definitely a lack of actual gore. There's a lot of violence. Yes. But not a lot of, like, blood and guts. So that's different. Which is <laughs> which is the difference with horror films. We get the stylized violence, but we also exactly. get the gore. Which is much more in line with the reality of things, which is why I enjoy it. So moving into, yes, aestheticized depictions of violence, which definitely are our films that we're talking about today in Italian horror overall and horror so Xavier Morales, he is a film critic. So he, in the article that I read, had argued that, you know, films like from Tarantino, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, you know, they represent violence as a form of expressive art. The violence is physically graceful, it's visually dazzling, and meticulously executed that our instinctual emotional responses undermine any rational objections we may have. So we love to watch it despite what, you know, is actually happening on screen and how we actually feel about it, essentially what Jess was talking about. We have Margaret Bruder. Uh, she is a film studies professor at Indiana University and the author of Aestheticizing Violence, or How to Do Things with Style. So she had talked about that there's a distinction between aestheticized violence and the use of gore and blood in mass-marketed action or war films. And she had argued that aestheticized violence is not merely the excessive use of violence in a film. Action movies overall are, in fact, very violent, but they do not fall within the category of this aestheticized violence that we're talking about because it's not stylistically excessive in a significant and sustained way. So that's the difference. There's like violence for the sake of flashy action violence, which is why I'm not normally into action films, unless you're John Wick, Drive, or The Guest. Uh, and then, you know, our Italian horror movies, for sure. Uh, so, and then she was classifying films using, you know, stylized violence that they, you know, they kind of revel in the guns and the gore and the explosions, exploiting mise-en-scene, not so much to provide a narrative kind of environment, but to create the appearance of a movie atmosphere against which specifically cinematic spectacle can unfold. Da-da-da! Our spectacle of Italian horror and stylized violence. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really neat. And of course, you know, the directors and the cinematographers, they're, they have different ways of, of shooting these movies, right? Quick and awkward editing, canted framing, shock cuts, slow motion, and everything like that. And then I read this really great article called The Elegant Brutality of Dario Argento by Maitland McDonough. And this is going to be a bit more Argento-specific, but I think it really can relate to the overall feeling and vibe of Italian horror. So it's not out there to make you jump. You're not going to see a lot of jump scares in these films, which is really, really neat about them. They're dark, they're exhilarating. So Argento in specific, he's got this world of twisted logic, uh, stylized excess, 20th century gothic, inverted, formally imbalanced, and grotesque films. His vision is perverse, yet wholeheartedly romantic. And this author was saying that it's kind of driven by the contradictory nature of erotic appeal. The camera work is odd, 
But it's different. It's enthralling. You know, he has like this blood drenched fantasy about him. There's intertextual references in Argento films that kind of link his films via the images of bizarre sexuality, extreme sadism, water, curtains, and a lot of eyes, which we'll get into later. Mm-hmm. Dreams and flashbacks. We see a lot of those interrupt the flow of the narratives themselves. Close-ups, high-angle long shots, you know, kind of disrupt the sense of continuous internal space. You know, he has this ever-relistless camera eye. Tons of imagery. And even if you're not Argento, you can see it. You see, a, you can definitely see some of the influence in Stage Fright, but if you see other Italian horror films, you're definitely going to see so much about the imagery. <laughs> you know, yeah. Argento has his own specific cinematic style, less story-oriented. Story He's visually flamboyant. I, I remember reading about... Somebody actually mentioned on Twitter about this certain kind of crane shot in, I think it was in Suspiria, but I don't, couldn't remember exactly what he was talking about. But when I rewatched Tenebrae, I was like, what is this like three minute shot of just going from window to window to window in this apartment building? And I was like, well, these are nice shingles, <laughs> but it's like that awesome theme songs going. So you don't even care if you're looking at the side of a house. You know, yeah. it's just he has really weird camera angles and it's really, really interesting. Tracking shots, that's what they're called, which is really, really, really neat and unique to, to what he does specifically. And you definitely see it in opera. Just getting into it. Elegant brutality of Italian horror. The elegantly staged murder tableau brought up in stage fright. They set up these scenes of death and destruction, but they're so beautiful. I love the, the that term elegant brutality because that might be a taboo terrors something at some point. <laughs> it's so good. But what's amazing about it is that it makes the ugliness of what's happening beautiful. It takes away like the messiness of death, the smell of death, and replaces it with this like crazy, vibrant work of very clean art. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah. So now we're going to get a little bit more into Stage Fright, the movie. Yeah, so Stage Fright, the film, it was filmed primarily in Italy at the end of the 1980s when the slasher boom was beginning to become overinflated by sequel after sequel. And this was uh, Michel Savoy's first time sitting in the director's chair with the help of Italian genre legend Joe D'Amato as producer and writer, George Eastman, also known as Luigi Montefiore, who wrote the cinema nasty Anthropophagus. And also an interesting connection is that uh, Savoy once served as an assistant director not only to Joe D'Amanto, but to Dario Argento and Lombardo Bava. Yeah, so that's all that really cool connection that in our research originally we made. So we're like, let's just pair these two films together. They're similar in a lot of different ways, just like the general premise of them. So yeah, let's just talk about both of them. So the film premiered in Italy in, on August 21st in 1987, and then it received a theatrical release in the U.S. in May of 1989. It's also been released under multiple titles known as Deliria, Bloody Bird, Aquarius, and Soundstage Massacre. Worldwide, though, it's known as Stage Fright Aquarius, which I think is really interesting because I don't understand where this term Aquarius comes from in this film. Bloody Bird makes more sense. Deliria <laughs> makes more sense. Bloody Stage Bird. Fright Aquarius? Okay. I don't know. It's not the age of Aquarius there. I don't know. 
It was no, made in the 80s. So. It was made in the 80s. So it was definitely, while it was a slasher film, it definitely had lots of Italian and giallo influences from its camera angles, music, and from its shots. And also because it is a very far-fetched and bizarre film, so it makes it very reminiscent of the <laughs> Italian style of horror. Like, there's a plot that doesn't make any sense, but it works. So there's some really interesting things that happened in this film, and some of the big things that I like to point, like pointing out, was this whole idea of sex and sexual violence being portrayed on stage. Hmm. So when we open up with the film, we're being op- we're being introduced to a group of actors. Uh, rehearsing a play that's going to be opening up soon and one of the first things that they rehearse is uh, a prostitute getting murdered on stage Mm -hmm. and then you see later on uh, other prostitutes enacting their revenge on the killer by raping him and this is actually a really important thing to this director because throughout as we watch the film this reaction of these actresses there's many of these scenes of very sexualized violence happening on these on these scenes and there's actually this one scene where when the killer actually dons the mask like he, this escape killer gets into this state sound stage and locks them all and they're all locked in by the director mm-hmm. there is this one actress she's enacting a scene of like you know coming like seducing her lover and getting ready for her lover to come to her and ends up being the killer who ends up killing her on stage and the whole time the director's like yes kill her kill her kill her not realizing that oh it's actually the killer and he's actually calling on this killer to kill his actress oh completely at first i couldn't remember what you were you were mentioning but yeah it's and it's it's like the director was all about it. Everybody is watching like it's completely normal. I don't know why yeah. you don't understand that this is actually real life violence and murder happening. But then there's a guy. I think he's the producer that like has all the wads and wads of cash sitting everywhere. Yeah. But he almost looked looked on it with like glee, and he just it almost showed like him really enjoying what he's seeing more so than he probably should have. Right? And to me, like, watching this film, it was because that scene comes up after we have uh, Irving Wallace, who is the actor-turned-serial killer. He escapes from the mental hospital with the two actors, the actress and the costume designer who come back after Mm -hmm. one girl is tucking and getting her ankle looked at. And he kills Betty, the costume director. And so whenever the co- and when everyone comes out to outside and they're being interviewed, they're being asked questions. All of a sudden, the director and the producer uh, Fiore get this idea of being like, "Oh wait, we can we can we can monopolize on this. We can mm-hmm. capitalize on this. We're going to use this murder to draw more of an audience into us, <laughs> and we're yeah. going to change the play to be about the serial killer, yeah. and then." You know, and so, and then literally, not even like that, moments later, we all of a sudden see the serial killer come on stage and actually kill one of their actresses, not realizing that this is actually happening. And then you said, like, you said, Fiore, he's like surrounded by money, and he's just, and it's like, so it's very characteristic or very comedic of this, like, yes, they are gonna do exactly what they wanna do. They want to commercialize this morbid fascination with death that people love to watch read hear about mm-hmm. you know they'll go to a play because like oh did you hear like this person was literally just murdered outside by this serial killer that they're doing this play on we yeah. need to check this out yeah and it's really interesting that 
The killer himself, Irving, has no interest in it whatsoever. He is literally just there to kill for killing's sake. And I thought it was really funny how when the actresses and the actors and director all realize that this is actually a killer on stage and they take off running, Fiore is like trying to gab all the money and then when the killer is like um, encroaching on him, he's like, here, take all this money. And the killer's like, I'm not interested in your money. I want to kill you. That's all I'm here for. And... (laughs) Oh, yeah. More important things than your money, dude. More important things. <laughs> yeah, so I thought there was like just this really interesting way that this film is portraying how, as an audience, we are so fascinated yeah. by watching these things on stage, this idea that we kind of like get off well we don't get off on sexual violence but we some do that's that's true and we mm-hmm. kind of like there was some moments where i felt like this director was like what is wrong with this guy like he is really into this and he really shouldn't be but that we get in that we're interested and we're fascinated by watching someone getting killed on stage and that we social like detachment that people have from watching something happening on stage a violent murder or an act to it actually happening mm-hmm. and so we have that that thing is blending because we're like okay there's an actual killer now, and he's just been like, I'm just reminding you what the reality of this situation is. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kill you, and it's going to suck. And no one's going to be watching it, because no one's going to watch you die. <laughs> Whereas on, on the stage, you're showing that. Yeah, no, for sure. That's a wonderful, wonderful point. Also, Morbid Fascination of Death is a Carpathian Forest song, which is a black metal band. Just saying. <laughs> as soon as you started saying Morbid Fascination, I was like, of death. <laughs> <laughs> And yes, you know, talk about can't look away from a car accident scene Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, based on a true event, based on a true story. We do have a fascination, man. Talk about our whole Pet Cemetery episode of, of the podcast, you know, talking about we are like afraid of death, but we're so intrigued by death. It's just such such an intangible thing to us. So yeah, we are... I think as a human species, quite, quite intrigued by the whole mm-hmm. thing, for sure. And it's just not something you see every day, you know? No. So it's, of course, we're going to be fascinated by it. The cat. <laughs> the cat. You wanted to, I think you wanted to talk about the cat. Who doesn't want uh, to think- talk about the cat? <laughs> it was just like the cat. So it was interesting that the cat was named Lucifer. I didn't even catch so, on to that. <laughs> you didn't know. So you have this little black cat that's running around everywhere. And the cat's name is Lucifer. And he's like <laughs> causing mischief. He's kind of yeah. like, and which to me, it was kind of like a little interesting. Cause it's like, oh, you know, that idea of Lucifer that he's around and, you know, he's not, re- he's not really involved, but he kind of causes mischief in his own way. Or he kind of is like more of the overseer of the mischief Ooh. that is happening. Yes. Right? And it, especially because, like you said, like everyone else treated that cat so poorly. I was going to say that just very nonchalantly, passively exerting his influence on everyone around yes. him. <laughs> exactly right. And then it's like the only, and like you said earlier, the only person who treated that cat well in any way was the killer, was Irving mm-hmm. Wallace. The fact that, you know, among this guy's murder, like scene not even scene I want to say it's like um his like his artist artistic set piece of all all mm-hmm. set around him right the cat's doing its thing just kind of exploring nibbling and licking at things and then you know like you said he sits in the armchair you know stroking the cat in his lap listening to the music yeah. and it's just like and it's almost like yes Lucifer's influence has completely encompassed the soundstage it's kind of like this cat's like, I watched you all acting out like fools, and now I see you all dead. Man, there's even more to this movie than I thought. <laughs> Leave it to you to remember that the cat's name is Lucifer. 
<laughs> oh my god. So for me, I just, I really noticed within these two movies and overall eyes in Italian horror. So we mm. talked a bit about everybody watching that girl die in the beginning. Everybody's very passive and complicit about it, except for I think the producer that like licked his lips. Maybe he didn't. In my mind, he oh, licked his yeah. lips. And he was like into yeah. it. I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> but also in the beginning, you kind of see the close-up of the woman's eye. There's the man in the owl mask. So you have the owl's eyes and then the man you see eyes like the actual guy's uh. eyes within the mask itself we have a variety of pov shots which of course in slasher movies overall which we've talked about before is huge and it's also just huge in italian horror especially giallo type movies so there's an italian term for the eyewitness of a crime and that's called testimony ocular so this is related to the theme of eyewitnesses an unreliable sight and in of course the spirit of carol clover there's numerous incidences of violence done to the eyes particularly opera and there's a generous amount of titles within italian horror with glee ochi in them which refers to the eyes of detectives victims killers or cats <laughs> uh, so the, the quote-unquote giallo eye is both penetrating and penetrated so it's a very interesting aspect, I think, of all of these movies. And of course, well, when we get into an opera, but we see it because that's like a huge theme in opera. We have different views, different angles, the eyes being significant overall to the premise. Because, you know, at first our killer in stage fright is just watching stuff happen. And then, because, I mean, he sees kind of what's going on. He's like, oh, there's this kind of costume scenario. And from it, I can hide myself, but seem like I'm looking through it through the eyes of the regular actor, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, the eye is just a reoccurring theme. It's sight mm. of potential violation and victimization or a vehicle for victimization. Because, of course, the killer is going to gain a whole bunch of information from doing surveillance and our POV shots. And then, of course, we see a variety of close-up shots of the eyes themselves. And, yeah, it was episode 12, Camp Spinsters, when we look at the Friday the 13th series and looking at the importance and intrigue of the point-of-view shot itself. Because you can see a lot from the killer's point of view. It kind of puts yourself in the shoes of the killer and it ends up being kind of creepy. So the film stage, right, a couple more little notes about this film is that it's more like Halloween than it is a film like Blood and Black Lace. There's no mystery to who our antagonist mm -hmm. is. We know our killer is Irving Wallace. He's a real boogeyman. He has a lust for murder and he has no other motive. No. He's a Michael Myers. Oh, There's yeah. no motive to why he's doing it. <laughs> he's just doing it. He wants to kill you and he's enjoying it. Yeah. And that's what makes uh, it this film different as a slasher film because of a lot of its influence of European shots and that film uh, making style. So Savoy, he employs a well thought out script, intriguing Okay, well thought out script. Okay, kind of, but intriguing persona. <laughs> There's more story in this movie than like many Italian horrors, so thank you. <laughs> I guess, yeah, we give him that. There's a little more of a sense of story to it. And he, I guess you would say like, they get their just desserts like, oh, you're going to commercialize on my uh, a serial killer doing what he does every day? Okay, well, I'm just gonna, you know, teach you a lesson about that. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess they can't do that. And we have a lot of witty dialogue, which is all that has influenced him in his career. And so what's also interesting in this film 
film is that we get a lot of real life situations in this film with their with a lot of our characters because we see in the 80s we know we have a lot of actresses actors and actresses who are broke and they need money so they're willing to do it is probably a really shitty play and they you know crazy sexual violence and sexualized storyline to it but like they need money and the director reminds them on multiple occasions you need money so you need to do this or especially really? when they all have that moral outrage when he's just like okay so we're gonna capitalize on betty's murder yeah. and we're gonna do the serial killer and they're just like no this no. is crazy we're not gonna do this and he's like totally. i'm willing to give you more money yeah. and they're like oh the show yeah, must go true. on he totally yeah you're right he totally, yeah. totally is like exploiting these poor actors that just want a job and express themselves creatively and he's totally exploitative he's terrible hot but he's terrible and then of course we get the young couple who are expected to be parents so I thought that was a little like unnecessary point of the film mm-hmm. because at the end they, they both ended up getting killed and I kind of feel bad as the one who is pregnant as the one who gets torn in half or like ooh that's awkward oh <laughs> damn yeah <laughs> but the film does handle all emotions people would feel when they realize they're stuck in a theater <laughs> with a killer you definitely see people are struggling with the concept of fight or flight mm-hmm. we see a lot of fear anxiety we see a lot of paranoia and a lot of panic that's ensuing among the group like there's just like they don't know what they do they don't know how they're gonna deal with this killer they're willing to turn on each other they're like human bonds yeah. are really tested in this film and this what brings um and we see this really in an interesting scene where they're all trying to go up the ladder to get to the high area above the stage Mm -hmm. and our final girl in uh, quotation marks she is following behind one of the other girls and because she gets stuck and she needs help the other girl like literally just kicks her off and the only reason why she survives is because the final girl was knocked out because her one of her peers who was trying to escape like knocked her out and it was like oh and you can see like she has like a moment of guilt and then she's like oh well i survive and just kind of keeps going up she ends up dying yeah but it's interesting because we see how people value their lives or the lives of others in this film. Complete. It's all about survival. Yeah. <laughs> really, perhaps they should have just all stayed in one room together, but whatever. Then we wouldn't have a movie. <laughs> mm. Right? Uh, exactly, right? Uh, you know, they're like, let's separate the group. Let's separate yep. the group to do things. You're like, no, never separate. Never separate. <sighs> No, people are dumb in movies, and that's why we have these movies. If everybody was so highly intelligent and made all the right decisions. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of our quote-unquote final girl, I'm pretty sure it was her, but eventually she gets the keys, and she gets to the door, and she's taking her sweet ass time oh, trying I... all the keys. I'm like, why why are right? you not in a rush right now? <laughs> he is on your tail at any moment. It's a horror movie. At any moment, he could appear behind you. And yeah. she's just, yeah, da 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 da. I'm gonna try this key and then the next key. But like normally in movies, it's like this exaggerated motion of now it's almost annoying to watch them stumble and fumble with these keys but she was just very nonchalant about it and I found that very annoying (laughs) (laughs) why are you taking so long don't you want to get out maybe she didn't I don't know but I did what I did make note of which I found was very interesting especially for a movie in the 80s our real ending had our black gentleman saving the white woman oh yeah which That's is true. definitely not the norm no nope. still now but definitely yes. not in the 80s so mm-hmm. that was a really interesting kind of subversive twist to to this movie 
Italian horror always keeps you on your toes. You never kind of know what, what you're going to get and what's going to happen. It seems like it's going to be very blasé and not interesting. And then it kind of twists it around and, you know, it does things you don't expect, which I've kind of felt that way about stage fright in a lot of ways. You know, and then going back to Margaret Bruder, who talked about aestheticized violence. So again, it's huge in Italian horror. It's a bit kind of lighter in stage fright, but we can definitely see the essence of all of his influences in this movie. Again, especially that epic, beautiful ending. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought that that was, uh, was really, really great. All right, let's get on to opera. curious so I was really excited to to see opera the premise seemed really interesting all of the like the stills and the trailer and everything looked really interesting so I was pumped to see it yeah the same with me too it was also a first time watch for me I knew it was part of the Argento filmography and uh, one of his uh, final films before things started going downhill from there Mm -hmm. and I know one of the reasons why I definitely want to see it was uh, years ago I ended up running into uh, running across a record copy of like a sound of the soundtrack and it has that epic image on the screen right of like the opera house in the back but then the eye the close-up of the eye with like the razors under it Mm -hmm. and i'm just like oh like what is this and this is when i was first getting into horror and i was like okay well i haven't watched too much of argento so i'll wait so i was excited to finally watch this film it's very um not bold but like it's really intriguing to see kind of what is going on in this movie just by looking at that still alone from a movie so yeah i was super pumped so what did you like about it what i like about it well i love the music that's an obvious thing Mm -hmm. uh i think it was very i love the set pieces and the scenery my favorite uh act my favorite one of my favorite characters was the costume designer Mm because she was she has so much attitude but she was great like she was very like italian and (laughs) that she was interesting as a character 
And I don't know. I, I think it was kind of interesting that they have this concept of they were doing this play Macbeth mm-hmm. on uh, stage. And it was very like a movie, but it was also very like horror-esque to it. So mm-hmm. I think that was, I was like, huh, like, I wonder what this interesting interpretation of Macbeth would be. I would kind of be interested in seeing this on top of watching opera. So I think I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed bits, uh, pre- the premise of the film and some of its ideas. However, I don't think it was developed enough. So mm-hmm. it actually took me, I watched it for the first time, and then it actually took me more research into the film to actually understand mm-hmm. why the killer was doing what he's doing. I was like, I don't get why what's happening here. And then I actually read more about it. I was like, oh, now I understand. And I think when, when Kelly was up here in Ottawa and she was watching it, I kind of rewatched that again with her at the ending, and we talked about it. I was like, yeah, now I, now I understand why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also enjoyed the premise of the movie, and I think... There were a lot of fantastic kills in it. And I think some of the best are gentle kills I have seen in the handful of movies that uh, that I have now watched of his. So that was really, really, really fun to me. It was the darkest in overall color scheme and color palette out of the movies mm. I've seen. So, of course, I like that. A lot of, like, black, a lot of gold. So just overall wasn't as like vibrant as his other movies. So that was That's really true. fun change for me. I also thought the music was fantastic. So there's like three different styles in this movie, but oddly enough, it worked very well. You have the opera, you mm-hmm. have the heavy metal music, yep. Yep. <laughs> and it's the overall kind of instrumental score in the movie. So three very different styles. But it, I don't know, it somehow it really worked for me. I really loved that aspect of it. Yeah. So what did you dislike about it? I didn't find it overly compelling of a movie. And it was the movie that made me, again, think, okay, Argento, can you make your movies, like, maybe 20 to 30 minutes shorter? Because there's <laughs> so much just filler. And I always find the pacing to be so off that I don't find them very interesting to watch. So that was definitely a dislike for me. I also didn't like how our protagonist wasn't close at all to being a human being. So a yes. lot of, she acted yes. very abnormally. So even yeah. from the get-go, the first death of her boyfriend, she's like, ah, I'm just in the car, whatever. He, I just yes. witnessed him dying. And then throughout the whole movie, it's like she's not traumatized whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree. And that's actually one of the things I disliked about the film, too, was the actress of the woman who played Betty and just like her choices and her decisions did not make any sense at all. Those were not normal human reactions to the absolute horror that she was going through. Being tied up, needles under your eyes, you have to witness co-workers and beloved friends and boyfriends being killed in front of you. And you're just like, oh, this is just this is just a hard day. What? <laughs> I'm going to talk about sex and love with my director in his car yep. after I just watched I'm my like, boyfriend no. get brutally mortared. Yep. Like, Yeah, so that was really not a great aspect for me. Like, sometimes I can forgive when maybe a character doesn't act great, but it was mm. just so apparently wrong. So yeah. I was not into that. There's a bit of that narration at the end that I find cheesy, but I always yes. find narration over movies cheesy and I'm not into them. So that's just my own personal dislike overall for movies that have narration. How about you? Well, you? well for me, like, like I said, like my already my dislikes was like the actress there. Yeah. And the, the decisions that she was making in terms of playing her character. Also, I did not like the ending. 
it didn't make any sense for... <laughs> Oh, like, boy. I know some people have just, like, described it and like, oh, is her return to innocence? I'm just like, She was always no. innocent. She, yeah, like, nothing she did made any sense. Yeah, and the fact too. that, like, she's, like, rolling in the grass, like, it just... <laughs> I was like, what's happening here? What's happening here? And I find that that has, like, that has a tendency to happen, whereas, like, sometimes in these films, they like to tend to go this very, like, dramatic, overly, like, like thoughtful ending you know, this is like thought-provoking ending for our, our viewers. I'm like, no, it doesn't make any sense to the narrative. Like, yeah. why would you go that route? Uh, there is the element of... Okay, so the random element of the child and her abusive mother. Right. What was a, right, that don't like, need, subplot that wasn't even a subplot, but was there somehow. <laughs> like, doesn't make any sense no. at all. <laughs> Like, I know I understand it was like they're using the child as a way to pop into the vent so that she pop out of the vent so to help her get, escape the killer. But even then, like, it just didn't make any sense. And then later on, like, after you see Betty in the house and the woman's like, get out of here, get out of here. And the yeah. girl's yelling at her mom. Yeah. You see them later on, like, at the play watching Betty perform. Yeah. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Nope. It's, it's so unnecessary. So it's like adding stuff in there that's not really necessary. Um, but I guess it's because, like, our, our actress was making such poor decisions in terms of how she's portraying. They're like, we have to throw something in here to make things make sense. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it definitely had some moments of falling apart that I wasn't a huge fan of. And also, the one thing I dislike, too, and I didn't see anything in my research, but if those ravens were real or not, the ones that got killed. Because oh. it looks too real, and I know that sometimes Italian horror can get itself into trouble by actual like actual animal cruelty in it. Yeah. it was, like, the 70s and 80s, and there's no... Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was actually made a... I didn't... I made a mental note to try to look that up, but I never ended up doing that, because... In the last few months, I remember reading online of, and um, perhaps maybe it's Phenomena or another movie where there's cats in it, that there may be some discrepancies on how well the animals were treated. So it's probably Inferno because there's it was a Inferno. scene. Yeah, there's a scene in Inferno with cats, and there's like mm. this one scene where the the guy that I really hate in that movie is picking up a cat by the scruff, mm. and you can tell that cat's in pain. I'm just like, you're not supposed to hold a cat that way. It's so bad mm. for them. Um, but yeah. Right. I think when we revisit this master of horror, Argento, it's definitely something we should look into because there's been some grumblings online about perhaps some of the treatment of animals in his films. So I think mm. it's worthwhile looking into because, dude, if you heard animals in your films, I'm not going to be a fan not of yours. A, yeah. And that's going to be a hard pass for me. So it's definitely something we should look into at some point. No, I definitely agree with you because yeah. that yeah, that would definitely change my opinion on Argento films. Mm-hmm. So we're now going to look into voyeurism and fetishism. It wasn't that long ago when I visited for the first time Laura Mulvey's visual pleasure and narrative cinema. So she is kind of the originator of the concept about the male gaze in film, and then. For this podcast, I looked into um, another article called Sexual Difference in Cinema, Issues of Fantasy, Narrative, and the Look by Steve Neal. So he actually talks about Mulvey's piece on narrative cinema, but I find he kind of paraphrases a lot of her work into something a bit more reader and user-friendly because she, I find some of her piece on 
uh, the male gaze and stuff like that a little bit hard to kind of understand. It's very wordy, a lot of film terminology and stuff like that. So I really liked his article more and it kind of just helped put things uh, together a little bit more. And so if we're thinking about voyeurism, fetishism, male gaze, the look in cinema definitely is like the key piece of work to, to read and I definitely recommend his work. So erotic pleasure in looking at others as objects can become a bit of a perversion, a bit of a fetish. We can get sexual gratification from looking and observing others. And we're definitely gonna talk a good amount about scopophilia, which is a person deriving aesthetic pleasure from looking at something and from looking at someone. And that can become a sexualizing thing. And there are a variety of looks in film and that film utilizes. And it can go from the camera to the event, from the spectator to the screen, and from character to character within the narrative. So the spectators, so us, scopophilic drive, is engaged and oriented such that identification is produced between the look of the male protagonist and the look of the spectator. Again, us. So overall, the female figure solely is the object of the look. And look can take two basic forms, voyeuristic, fetishistic, both of which are a response to the threat of castration, always evoked in the male by the female body. Mulvey is a huge believer in the fear of castration, that men and <laughs> that men deal with this in multiple ways. Uh, they can investigate the woman or demystify her, which in turn devalues or punishes the object of guilt. Or they substitute a fetish object or they fetishize an object, or they turn the person that represents their trauma into a fetish, so then it's reassuring and no longer dangerous. But when you look at voyeurism, uh, the look in film can be, it's aggressive, it's investigative, it's very active, and can be sadistic. If you go to the fetishism side, there's that threat. The threat of castration is diminished by the process of idealization and glamorization. The female image is now smooth, faultless, and without lack. And again, the look is either active in male or passive in female. And men are always the one doing the looking. And women are the ones being looked at. The men doing the looking, they control the narrative. And they cannot be the bearer of objectification. It's always the women. Thank you very much. Uh, this will split the story and the spectacle or the film, the movie, supports this and will allow the man to forward the story along. And we see this so much in opera. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> the male controls the film fantasy. They represent power. They will structure the film around the protagonist so we can identify with them. He will project his look onto us, controls the events, and then controls the erotic looking, becoming all powerful. And yes, the male body is never other. Always the female. They're never the object of the scopophilic desire, either for the male spectator, the men watching the movie, the male gaze, or any kind of heterosexual female gaze. And we, as viewers of film, are the voyeurs. We are spectators into this different private world, and we enjoy it. So going a little more further into the concept of fetishism and the concept of voyeurism is looking at where these, this concept of the fetish came from. 
And so in my research, uh, a lot of information came up about Marx, uh, Karl Marx, who was looking at the term fetish in terms of commodities and money. So in capitalism, we see a lot of men and women produce an ever-expanding array of wealth, um, but at the same time, they feel like these having these things create a, a sense of power over them and in the end they end up bowing down and worshiping the fetish that is capital which is also kind of interesting too because if you think of it now in our day and age a lot of um, our sexual desires sexual needs but also sexual interest um, have a huge capital themselves and so you see this interesting idea of that the fact that you know we bow down to capitalism we bow down to money we allow money to control our lives and it'll, over time we're going to see this cross of like sex and money coming together and how that controls our lives as well which then leads me into our wonderful gentleman freud who looks at <laughs> fet- <laughs> it always comes back to freud always comes back to Freud. Uh, fetishism involves the displacement from reality that shaped the contour of the of individual development. So this is looking at the end of pleasure of re- reproductive sex could be blocked by an attachment to fetishes like of objects such as fur and underwear instead of that of the genitals. So the word fetish itself represents a sort of idealization of an object of worship. And this in turn can be described as sexual objectification of a person's body or other items, and every perversion has its roots in everyday life. So we see later on that this term fetishism was initially coined also to by French psychologist Alfred Binet, but it was not before Richard von Kraft Ebing who adopted the term and for what it became known for. So when you hear the term fetish, you think sex, like instantly, right away. Sex, something kinky, something perverted, something of the taboo mm-hmm. and not of the norm of, or what we consider the sexual norm or what we've been told is the sexual norm. I'm using brackets. He looks at it in his, in his 1887 article, La Fetishism dans l'amour, he describes this case of eroticizing a nightcap. So this is the case about a man who becomes aroused by the idea of a naked man or woman wearing a nightcap. And so he talks about this experience of watching a very ungood looking man or in another another case, another very um, not very good looking woman, you know, getting ready for bed and stuff like that. And it's not until that person puts on a nightcap that he all of a sudden realizes how aroused he is and how it leads him to eroticizing and having this uh, sexual uh, attraction to this idea of a nightcap. And it's not until uh, the man ends up getting married and has uh, the inability to perform in the sexual act on the night of his wedding until he sees the image of the woman wearing a nightcap. And then all of a sudden he's able to perform. And this becomes a really interesting idea when it comes to fetishism. So this is like a way of being able to, uh, we have, we end up having a fetish for an object or a thing or something that, you know, causes erosion in our mind that is outside of the, what we consider the norm. So, which then we talk about this idea of voyeurism. So Kelly went through this great description about voyeurism and how in terms it's, it specifies the conduct of someone who is engrossed in prying in the personal affairs and lifestyles of other individuals. 
So this is more about being able to watch people secretly. Um, sometimes, typically, more people when they're either naked or they're in the act of uh, sexual practice. We also know that know that that's a in part of the sexual industry. The people who engage in voyeurism are called voyeurs, and these personalities utilize a number of certain procedures to avoid getting caught. So a voyeur typically does not want people to know that they're watching, and they perform in a lot of acts of stalking, uh, binoculars, cameras from afar, taking photos. They try to do everything they can to avoid their targets seeing them because that's what kind of gets them, not gets them off, but what attracts them to what they're doing. And then so in terms of Kelly talking about Laura Mulvey, she brings up the idea of scopophilia, which is the urge to look, but also obtain sexual satisfaction from it. So Freud declared that the urge often stems from childhood, where we were curious to see the forbidden parts of the body that are, are known to be, and they're known that way because they're forbidden to us. And this curiosity will present in ourselves throughout our lives and exists as an erotic basis for pleasure in looking at another person as an object. This curiosity can cause rare cases to turn into obsession or perversion, as Freud calls it. So when it comes to the skirm, uh, scopophilia and voyeurism, one can easily can be confused by these two terms and they can use them interchangeably. So voyeurism is the practice of gaining sexual pleasure from watching others when they are naked or engaged in a sexual act. And scopophilia is sexual pleasure derived chiefly from watching others when they are naked or engaged in sexual activity. So once the subject of scopophilia, Freud states that scopophilia at an extreme can become fixated into a perversion, producing an obsessive voyeurs and peeping toms who use only sexual satisfaction from watching in an active controlling sense of objectifying another. Scopophilia is an obsessive urge to look at sexual acts to obtain a sexual gratification. And how it differs from voyeurism is that they both, even though they both describe an individual deriving pleasure from looking, where they differ is that the voyeur is having at least some control as his behavior, where scopophilia seems to be out of control of their behavior. And so what I, and it was interesting because I was really trying to find this idea of voyeurism and the idea of the voyeur in the film opera, but when I was learning about scopophilia all of a sudden kind of clicked to me today and I was just like wait a second I feel like the police officer in the film and even Betty's mother were uh, individuals who had uh, scopophilia were this scopophiliac behavior because they connected in their relationship their sexual arousal and possession of each other from from these very overt acts of violence and of violence and probably sex against these women that the killer was killing for Betty's mother's sake. Mm -hmm. Whereas the voyeur doesn't want to their object of desire to know that they're watching him, the killer wanted Betty to know mm -hmm. that he was watching her. He calls her, he, you know, even like, even though she doesn't know that he's the killer, like the cop, like he's constantly interacting with her. And that's kind of like in his own way being like, kind of getting like this, this uh, sexual idea from it because there was that one like shot or that one memory, I guess. I don't know if it was Betty having the memory of the killer of, uh, coming into on the woman and killing her in her sleep, but she's all naked and mm -hmm. he thinks of like, so I thought that was like, when I read that today, I was like, oh yeah, that's actually okay. I can see where this concept of him kind of being a voyeur, but he's not. Yeah. The scope of feel like behavior. Agreed. Definitely not a voyeur. Voy I feel like the, the voyeur is a very passive, non-aggressive type person. Yeah. 
So to talk more about opera, I'm you know talk about voyeurism. I'm gonna go back to the eyes because mm. it's such a huge theme in these movies and opera. You know, it's fixated on the issues of vision, namely spectatorship, performance, voyeurism, violence. We have a lot of POV shots. We have the raven's eyes and their point of view. In the very beginning, the killer uses binoculars to watch our protagonist, Betty, in the the opera. Then you see our tracking shots, like going through the theater and following him as, as he starts killing people in the theater. Again, those POV shots. Not to mention that amazing gunshot through the eye. Oh, yes. Right? Yes. It's all about the eyes. <laughs> Uh, and then I thought what, what was really interesting is that near the end uh, of the film, so uh, the last kill, Betty is actually blindfolded. So now she can no longer see or bear witness to the crime. So, you know, maybe the killers finally realize that she's not like her mother. I don't know, but he blindfolds her and now she has to use her other senses to, to figure out kind of what's going on in the room around her, which I thought was kind of interesting yeah yeah the fact that in his last kill right mm-hmm. which is going to be her or no himself yes yes exactly yeah and that room, he won't he let her first, see it she can't see him so i guess mm-hmm. she can't gain any pleasure from him dying whereas he thinks that her mother well she gained you know sexual gratification and intrigue and loved watching other women be kind of tortured and killed but now we can't, yeah, now, thank you for mentioning that, because now I'm kind of switching it around to be like, now you can't gain pleasure from watching me die, because now that he has, like, traumatized her and tortured her over this entire movie, we, he cannot, she can't have that kind of closure, that catharsis of watching him, quote-unquote, die. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. And coming back to the different gazes and the looks, so... Going back to that Euro horror book, there was a whole uh, section on gazes, but there's like the assaultive gaze and then the reactive gaze. So the assaultive gaze is linked to masculinity, the aggressiveness, and, you know, to the killer. And the reactive gazes are linked to the victim or often the feminine. And the assaultive gaze is often through our POV shots. And then as we often see in like slasher films and stuff like that, it, rever- it becomes reversed so that the one that's doing the penetrating gets penetrated. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, then our reactive gaze is more strongly associated in, in some, you know, overall sometimes with the, the film audience. So now we are the ones that are receiving the horror. We're reacting to what we are seeing. And um, we can see a lot of this assaultive gaze in Argento films because he also does a shit ton of giallos and there's so much of the male gaze, uh, the point of view shots, and and stuff like that. So it's incredibly assaultive. And the eyes, concept of the killer attaching needles to the Betty's eyelids, which is really, really interesting. However, it was only used twice. And so I feel like my expectations for the film were really different than what actually happened. Like, I guess in my mind, I thought that maybe if she would spend the vast majority of the film all tied up with these needles under her eyes which would make for a much more interesting suspenseful film but then it goes into the whole aspect of the killer is not very efficient no (laughs) the killer i think i remember reading that like the killer and was it this movie that is kind of acting like argento himself in this 
and the fact that he's creating this, like, has to set up this whole fucking scenario in order for Be- Betty to witness the deaths of these people, but it's so inefficient. He's like, okay, now I gotta tie you up against something, place the shit on your eyes, and apparently has a limitless supply of needles and tape around <laughs> him to put on them, on her, mm-hmm. and then goes and has to kill the person. It's just not efficient. It's very dramatic. Which kind of took me away from it a little bit. Again, I think maybe yeah. my expect I just I I came in expecting that it was just gonna be more suspenseful and interesting in the way that maybe for like the majority of it she'd have to like watch so much. And said so, it yeah, really? It only was used twice. No, I I 100 agree with you, and that's kind of how I felt that film was gonna go. Or even then, that that scene, like just putting the razors on the eyes, like in my mind I thought like that's just like some really crazy dramatic scene in the movie, and then we'll probably never see it again. But like you said, we see it happen twice, and, you, and it's not very practical. No. It would be practical and interesting and very compelling if she was tied up for the vast majority of the movie, and then she would just have to watch all this unfold, but that's not what happens, so mm-hmm. it was really too bad. <laughs> uh, an interesting aspect of it, definitely within an opera, so we can see the effects of past trauma returning to the present, you know, identity is a kind of performance, the violence of desire, and the perverse voyeurism central to both the crimes being carried out on screen and then the act of watching films themselves. So it's like a film within a film, art imitating life, and you kind of have that in stage fright as well. Whereas that was a guy that was, the director was like a horror film director, decided to, you know, try his hand at theater and kind of do like a horror film, but within the theater kind of element. Yeah. And, you know going back again we don't have to rehash this but the whole aspect of you know us liking you know violence and death and watching it and then we're gonna go see a play about it and i just thought that was you know it's kind of what opera is about opera equates you know pleasure and pain together and it has which is very argento it has you know a bunch of like major flashbacks or inserts which kind of parallels Peter Neal in Tenebrae, mm. which if you look at the Italian title, which is Sotto gli occhi del assassino, which means under the eyes of the assassin, which accentuates the voyeurism. Tenebrae is a really fucking cool movie. Um, maybe yeah. we'll look at it at a different point, but... Um, um, and then it comes back into the kind of like the film within a film type uh, type deal, which I thought was really interesting. I feel like there's more interesting elements to opera than the actual movie itself, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I it's feel like the, is very Argento. <laughs> it's all about the symbolism. It's, you know, don't don't actually worry about the actual plot itself. Just look at everything else Pretty around much, the plot. Right? <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> You're like, what does the raven mean? Everything means something. But when you're watching it, you're like, what is happening? (laughs) I have the meaning of the raven in my notes. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. So I read this really great article called A Dangerous Mind by Michael Savastakis. And he says that opera links violence to surreal images and aberrant behavior and the antagonist's past sexual history. This movie has some aggressive sexual themes. So, you know, there's that scene of the killer lovingly gliding his life along the televised image of Betty, our protagonist, as if he was touching her body with his phallus. 
equating the sexual pleasure with pain. Uh, there is the voyeuristic fixation that compels the killer to commit murder and gaze at Betty on the television while quote-unquote fondling her with his knife, which is a reoccurring trope or metaphor connected with desire. The knife is his penis, folks. <laughs> and it's lack of se- and the killer's lack of sexual fulfillment. And we have seen that in the origin of our killer, or spoilers, Inspector Santini's past. So towards the end of the conclusion of the movie, he confesses to the relationship of what his, like, his kind of situation with Betty's mother. Um, and he says that she was too greedy. She wanted more blood, more cruelty. She wouldn't let me touch her. So I'm just assuming that she got all of her gratification from watching him do these you know, terrible acts, but they themselves probably never actually had sex. That was enough for her. And that is not enough for him. I'm sure he was quite uh, frustrated by that. Mm. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so this kind of quote unquote blood and cruelty is made kind of more apparent early on the film where there's like this shot of the spiral staircase being descended as a steady cam glides through the empty and derelict rooms, creating a fantasy like effect. As we see, a young woman's murdered in bed, while another woman, who we assume is Betty's mother, again, a lot of things are very vague, and you kind of have to sit back and think about it or research it afterwards to kind of figure out really what's going on. There's a lot of, like, vague aspects to it. Um, So the present is then conflated with the past, and there's that need to kill with a need to be seen killing, and the need to supplant sexual penetration with a need to inflict pain. All of which kind of show the killer's abnormal sexual drives and possible impotence, right? Maybe he wasn't able to have sex, or maybe she just didn't want anything to do with him. Again, so I, there's a lot of, like, aggressive sexual themes in this movie, or quote-unquote deviant sexuality, even, coming from the mother and the killer. Definitely. I don't think you should probably kill people for your sexual gratification. There might be a hard line with that, but we're not kink shaming anyone, but perhaps don't murder people for your own sexual gratification. <laughs> Please don't. Yeah, exactly. We are not condoning that. No, we are not. <laughs> but there's, I think, the really interesting, you know, aspects of this movie going on, and there's a lot of sexuality and symbolism, like you said, so... In terms of some interesting uh, notes and interesting facts about our, uh, opera, the self of this movie, opera is actually displays both Argento's worst and his best talents. And typically people don't tend to recommend this film to newcomers to Argento's work because the ideas are quite confusing mm-hmm. and there's some really bizarre acting choices. And as Kelly and I discussed <laughs> earlier, the main actress... Oh boy. Nothing makes sense in terms of her decisions and reactions. So I, you know, and side note, I do agree with that. That article is saying that it's like the best and the worst, and I wouldn't recommend this. There's a lot going on, and it's a really interesting film, but it's not very straightforward. Like, I think of myself, like when I first got into Italian horror, I think if I first saw this film, I'd be like, I don't understand why people like Italian or mm-hmm, I don't get mm-hmm. it right and so for me like I kind of started early with Argento's work mm-hmm. it was like Suspiria you know Inferno and then eventually I watched Deep Red you know and so I got like the taste of all his earlier stuff and then I watched this it's like okay yeah you have to appreciate Argento to understand completely how there's some good things to this film mm-hmm. and there's also like oh this is a typical Argento trope mm-hmm. that we're seeing we just we're okay with it once again 
in his films, as we were discussing earlier with uh, Argento films, they're quite recognizable with a killer who is always wearing black gloves and the gores and the, the kills are pretty sadistic mm-hmm. and they're kind of gory murders. We see uh, this infamous, this very uh, famous scene mm-hmm. of Betty being forced to witness these acts of brutality so her eyes taped open due to needle, razor sharp needles under her eyes and that blood. So that's a very iconic scene mm-hmm. in the film and it's a very iconic image. But also, like like I said, if you've never watched an Argento film before, you wouldn't understand why throughout the film we get these weird images of brains. Oh my god! Uh, Terrible CGI right? brains! <laughs> right, yeah, so like, you don't understand why you're getting these shots of this brain throughout the movie, and like, and it's in different stages, like, I don't understand, and until I read this article, and it's like, oh, it's about the brain dwelling on the past, the sins of the past. So it's like, oh, I get it. Oh, boy. Dumb, dumb. Like, of course, why didn't I understand that this is what he's trying me, to say? I was like, there's a brain moment happening. Oh, because I think it, 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 it happens anytime there's that flashback. Or, like, a dream that Betty is having with her, like, memory or, like, a flashback of what she was seeing as a child. And then there's a brain. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, (laughs) I don't get this. (laughs) Italian folks do not do CGI ever again. Yeah. (laughs) No. Very interesting. Uh, It's interesting because when we see the opening shot of the ravens, Mm. so, like Kelly was saying earlier, we see a lot of shots of the ravens, close up of the ravens' eyes throughout the film and this is typically supposed to be reminiscent of Edgar Allan Poe Mm, who has been accredited of the father of detective fiction um, in American American literature which is also one of the inspirations for the Italian giallo Mm -hmm. and that whole theme of Italian murder mysteries that also seem to find them way find themselves under the horror genre often but like kelly was saying earlier we get these interesting focus on ravens throughout the film Mm -hmm. and it was interesting how they like to portray the ravens as vengeful creatures with elephant-like memories of any past mistreatment Mm -hmm. so I, i thought it was a really interesting how the director like figures out like oh my god if the killer has seen these ravens do what they, he did and we did we watched this whole scene where the killer kills two ravens and the raven's like oh this fucker's going down we're going for him and like <laughs> all really the other smart. guys group, yeah. group up against them and then we get that interesting information from the uh, raven keeper who's just like oh yeah ravens never forget if you fuck the, if you fuck them over at any point yeah. they'll know who you are and so that's yeah. what they use to catch the killer yeah. is sending the ravens out right <laughs> so classic and like so like so archaic you know but amazing yeah. that's incredible yeah it was really incredible but it was like interesting so like kelly said like what do the ravens mean so i have to remember to do this with more animals and films kind of in terms of the area like but typically animals and a very lot of spiritual practices always have a sense of meaning Mm -hmm. there's always something there and it was interesting when i looked at the raven while there was tons of information one of the things that really pulled out and really reminded me of this film was that they are a symbol of bad luck Mm. and they were considered the uh the messengers of gods in the mortal world that if something was going to happen it was going to happen and it was not going to be good and we see ravens throughout this film and constantly betty says even when she gets the role of lady Macbeth, she's like Macbeth is a bad film to do. Mm. It's a lot of bad luck surrounding this film. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, that's when the killer makes his appearance. This is where we see a bunch of deaths happen. Like, yeah. all these things occur. Yeah. So it's like, we already know right from the get-go. We see a raven, and it's a film, and they're doing Macbeth. Bad luck all around. <laughs> and you're an, in an Argento film, so I wish you all <laughs> luck. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, and it's also too we see Betty she's plagued by a lot of half dreams and memories from her childhood so we see a lot of so when we see a lot of cutaways to hallucinatory flashbacks and a lot of like we were saying too brain shots so showing brain activity to these hallucinatory <laughs> flashbacks this association with mental illness and trauma of some sort mm. but it's also considered a very self-referential film because we have a horror director as Kelly was discussing mm-hmm. earlier is stepping into a different role but similar medium in the forms of using opera so using which is another type of a fantastical world of enter- art and entertainment. So bringing kind of like the horror genre into the opera film. And then you see Argento doing the same thing, bringing the horror genre into the Italian culture. But also he also starts to influence our fashion industries and art and stuff like that by bringing horror to this higher thinking of, uh, of art. I read this really great article called Gender Genre Argento by Adam Nee. And I, when we revisit Argento in the future, I'm definitely going to revisit this article because it was pretty fantastic. But some key notes about it is in Argento films, we can see multiple examples of gender and sexual ambiguity. So our killer is always masked or hidden. They have gloved hands. So we don't know their actual sex or gender. And so this can suggest, quote, instability of power relations implied by acts of looking and perceiving, which, you know, can question the rigidity of gender binarisms in horror. Because usually, you know, we come back to the idea of Carol Clover, who talked about in her influential book, uh, identifying with a victim, whether a male or female. She talks about that masculinizing the final girl. But Clover sees the killer as male, and that can vary in Argento. He keeps us guessing. You don't actually know what's going to happen. You don't know who the killer is going to be, whether they're they're memorable or not. Just can't remember the deep red killer. Killers. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Every time I forget. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, there's, you just, especially in the giallos, like, you don't know kind of what you're going to get. Is it male? Is it female? Like, we don't know. Which is, I think, really, really fascinating about... Uh, these films and then in opera of course the grand reveal at the end is you know who the killer is but it ends up being difficult to kind of boil all of this murder mayhem and violence down to just basic sadistic male agencies uh, the gender identities are complex and they're obscure which then can complicate our quote traditional understanding of narrative and ocular relations of power bring the eyes back into this right because we rely so much on our sight to be like yep that's the killer oh those hands those are very masculine it must be a man you know but we take all that away and it really just keeps us guessing and we're kind of just you know in the shadows for it and our traditional slasher movies are actually you know kind of titled generic gendered personalities because they're usually just like very straightforward but in opera you know Our killer ties up our protagonist, places needle under the eyes, forcing this female performer to become the spectator while other people in front of her are mutilated and killed. And this can be seen as challenging that traditional binary of the, you know, as I mentioned before, sadistic male violence, because we always see that the male is like aggressive and it's the male gaze and they're sadistic and everything. Then the women are the object of the look and they're passive and they're female. But we don't know the killer's gender, the orientation or their motivation. Initially, you know, as we watch the movie and then like everything kind of unravels and that causes an uncertainty and an instability in like the context of the whole movie, which I find really interesting. Again, when you read the, you read more about these movies, I sometimes think they're more interesting than when you watch them. I don't, I find, 
reading about them more compelling than sometimes watching them. And so our first murder happens after our protagonist states to her boyfriend that she can't have sex. He's like, no, I just, I can't, I can't do this. So she doesn't perform. She's not passive or penetrated. She just can't perform. And then we see her boyfriend, or the male, killed before her own eyes. Her eyes are forced open, forced penetration of the look. And then he is forcibly penetrated via stabbing. Mm, Yeah. Which I thought was really interesting. There's a lot of, you know, Jess mentioned, like you mentioned earlier, that there's a lot of misogyny and a lot of these Italian horror films, a lot of giallo, but then if you kind of look at it, sometimes Argento kind of spins that on its head and you're like, you don't know who the killer is, so don't boil it down to just being, you know, terrible patriarchy and sometimes they're women killers. So there's like a lot more going on than kind of meets the eye, which I thought was really interesting. But do you think it's also interesting that in opera, the kill of the boyfriend, like even though it's graphic as you see him like being stabbed multiple times, it happens like pretty quickly. Whereas the kill of the costume designer, the female, mm. is more brutal mm. and more graphic. Like right. he goes back and shows us what he's doing. And I'm just like, whoa. Like, and I know this is a common trend in horror in general that when we see a kill of a woman happen, it's a little more graphic. Mm-hmm. But I think it's like that interesting. It's like, yeah, like he spins it on his head, but there's also still that element of like, oh, but the female, the killing, the women being killed are a lot more graphic than the guys. They definitely can be. What stands out to me is when her boyfriend was killed, that was actually my favorite, one of my favorite parts. The knife, that huge knife comes up and it's like right in the mouth. Oh yeah. It's like really intense. I I personally, that stands out more to me than the death of the costume assistant or costume designer. It's like that knife goes right up into the mouth and the jaw, which I'm sure is like hugely painful. And then multiple, multiple stabbings. (laughs) because <laughs> it comes it comes up from under his yeah, chin yeah. And, oh and yeah, you see yeah, it in yeah. his mouth fuck that was yeah. realistic it's true there's a lot of like there's a lot of dynamics going on there and interesting you know gendered kind of changes and elements and you're right again like I like I was saying it's I don't really remember her death I think she was just stabbed a bunch of times I don't remember exactly. God, this was like last week, but but he stands out more to me than than her death. So I think that kind of says something in itself. Uh, there's this other moment that also really stood out to me that I thought was really interesting. Like, forget the context. Not, not okay. Don't forget the context. But like, forget like what happened. So right after her boyfriend is killed in front of her eyes, and then she like calls to get picked up by the other dude involved with the production, and she's like. Oh, like she doesn't even tell him. She's just like, oh, what a day. But uh, he, you know, he says to him, he's like, he got love problems. And then she says to him, you know, when a woman has a problem, everyone assumes it's a problem with love. I was like, bitch, (laughs) she just saw her boyfriend murdered. She's not going to tell you any of this. And that's not, that's besides the point. But you know what? This whole like, oh, there's something wrong. You, it must be related to your relationship. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, right? Because our women, our world revolve around our, our, our relationships, relationships and our men. We have no identities outside of nope. it. Nope. We are not human beings and our own people. Not at all. That whole, like, oh, trouble in paradise. Anybody says that. 
<laughs> you know, like, oh, it's boy. just very presumptuous. And like she's dealing, even though her character doesn't actually deal with her trauma, it's really terrible how it's all put put together. But like she's dealing with true terrible trauma and life altering scenarios. And come on. <laughs> yeah. So I actually really loved that moment that really kind of was uh, poignant to me where she's like, everyone's assume it's, you know, a problem with love, but there's a variety of things that a woman can be perturbed and upset by. A variety of things. For me, mainly, it's yeah. my career. You know what I mean? Like, things can, can happen that's not related yeah. to love. Exactly. That shit's easy to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> Set your boundaries and kick them to the curb. Damn. Yeah, right? <laughs> Right. So, there, I watched opera at Jess's place, and she was busy doing something else, and I just started fucking cracking up when I was watching a, a, a certain element of this movie. So, <laughs> when we were talking about space horror many months ago, we talked about vents. <laughs> we talked about xenomorphs coming out of vents, necromorphs oh, coming out of vents, that's from Dead Space, the video game, like, shit is not good in vents. Nothing good comes from vents. So Nope, never. In opera, in the beginning of opera, you can see there's like these point of view kind of voyeuristic shots of something looking at our protagonist through the vents. And like you assume oh it's gosh. the killer. And as the, as the movie goes on, it turns out it's the child from oh the God. other apartment. It was like, what is the most horrific thing that could come out of a vent? A human child. <laughs> You're like, bitch, I'd rather deal with a xenomorph than you right now. <laughs> Why is she in the vents? And she's like, I'm oh, just trying to get away from my parents when they're fighting. I'm like, you go in the vents and you spy on people? Little voyeuristic child. Get, <laughs> get like, out of the vents. No, nothing good is in the vents. <laughs> uh... Fuck the vents. Still stands on point. Hashtag fuck the vents. <laughs> Completely. The most horrific thing to come out of the vents. A child. Um, so the film itself, it offers a wide range of possible suspects who are limited each time that the each time when the killer is revealed. So this is typical among Italian horror films is, or gel films is that you think you may know who the killer is and you're like, no, I'm pretty sure it's this person, but it ends up being someone that you didn't suspect sometimes or you had an inkling but we we have an offer we get an offer to range of suspects and what's interesting about an opera is that argento what he likes to add is combine the main character's mental and dream state to cause confusion in reality which is something i will honestly i will give truthfully is that when she was having some flashbacks i was like is this real like is she now just imagining these things or is this really a, mm -hmm. like is she in a dream state i don't understand what's happening yeah and this is where this film is, is testing the boundaries of what is real and what's imaginary of dreams and waking life with the onstage theatrics and backstage realities. And so it's interesting that this is actually happening in her life and at times there's these hallucinatory images and there's these dreams that she has, but then she's also an actress in a play, in an operatic play, acting as a character, performing something for the audience, and yeah, at the same time too, she's kind of this there's this performance happening in her life and it's really confusing because it's mixing imaginary and with with belief and we don't you know and that's what we see a lot of times with acting is this, uh when you especially get invested into a character or an actor an actress and you're like you, you start blurring reality 
So we know our killer, he is voyeur, he has a fetishism. He is very much unwilling to defile or destroy Betty, who is the object of his pathological desires, his fantasies. Mm. So he's um, a true fetish, where he turns his back on reality. And this is a film where the shots of reality and dysfunction are... And it was interesting because like, we were talking about the brain shots earlier, and in this article they reference these brain shots as being an image of the killer's damaged brain. Mm. That he is showing that he has he's turned his back on reality, that he has these hypersexual fantasies, mm-hmm. and he becomes urgent and Argento motivates his killer with a very stressful and urgent first kill that is witness Betty while she has these sharp pins uh, taped under her eyes that will lacerate her eyeballs if she closes them. So there's hypersexual ideas in this fetish that this killer kind of gets off. And there's that one scene, the very first kill, where the way he touches her, Mm. I almost thought, like, when I watched that, I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to rape her now. But it it doesn't happen. Yeah, because he fondles her breast a little bit, right? He's like, ties her up, and fondles her a little bit. It's terrible. And you think something's going to happen, and then it doesn't. Well, he doesn't want to defile the object of his desires, of his fantasies. Definitely. So, and like Kelly said, uh, the eyes in the film, Mm -hmm. um, this uh, concept of the ability to see clearly is a recurring theme. Gunshot in the eyes, Betty's eyes forced open. We watch an opera on TV. Mm -hmm. Like, who goes... Like, the opera is something that you witness firsthand, so it was really odd to see watch something on TV. And then, of course, the killer's eyes are plucked out by a raven. Oh, yes. And the constant shots of ravens. So lots of eyes, as Kelly said. Um, the ending is very different from what you expect. <laughs> and like I said, the only way I really understood what this ending meant to this film is when they, this article described it as Betty is trying to release herself from childhood trauma and abuse and she's in re- the resulting regression. So that because she never dealt with her trauma and she was having this mixture of reality and fantasy blending in or her memories, mm-hmm that she begins to regress Mm. and that she's beginning to regress to a state of innocence so that of a child because she never got to experience that because she was dealing with uh you know ptsd and you know traumatic childhood of the results of these killings that are coming up so opera itself is a film that is an unsettling experience because it preys on our sense of vulnerability and how detached that we can come from experience of real trauma and that of death. And so that's why I was like, well, maybe this describes Betty's be odd behavior throughout the film. So like, as Kelly and I say, like she witnesses his murders and she acts like everything is normal or she just has blase conversations or she's not really like going right to the police mm-hmm. or getting help right away. And maybe that this is how she is so deep because she witnessed this traumatic experiences of her mother you know and this uh killer killing women for like pleasure or Mm. for just like that psychological need of having something fulfilled within Mm -hmm. them and then she sees her mother's murder and so like she feels detached from it so this is why she can't actually experience the real trauma of witnessing her boyfriend murdered witnessing a friend or two of her good friends murdered because she just doesn't know how to process it and maybe it's not until the end but even then Mm. it is still she's very detached and she doesn't yeah it's really odd and it doesn't really explain much of her behaviors no it doesn't and you know the way I was looking at it is that I was like how what trauma her past trauma like did she actually see these killings going on it's not very obvious it's not clear you know uh, you know reading about it is like yes that she is you know she I guess experienced some issues as a child and then that has been repressed I was like well what did she actually experience which made me really not be able to connect with the character at all or really really you know like understand yes her reactions but I guess if 
she did in fact witness some of these murders and these like weird like her mom being tied up like as a child you wouldn't be able to understand anything that's going on I don't know if that necessarily would still explain how nonchalant she was about all these deaths yeah. happening and like her being all tied up and maybe it was like well I've seen this all before so it's not as serious as it actually is in reality it's just like it's kind of hard to kind of figure out so I guess we're gonna move on to Spinster's final thoughts so for me I was really excited I'm I was. I am. I'm really, I was really excited to kind of start our initial exploration into Italian horror. Uh, I, like I said, I watched a handful of brand new films, which is really, really great. I learned way more about the genre. I learned more about Argento and maybe I think he's kind of overhyped. Maybe, maybe not. Whatever. Maybe. We'll see later on. But I don't find his movies very compelling to watch. Um, but he does create really wonderful looking films and no, there's definitely no doubt about that. And we'll be investigating more about this master of horror in the future for sure. I personally love this concept of elegant brutality in Italian horror. I love the excess, this cinema vomitif element of Italian horror. Of course, I love taboo terrors. That's why I created it. This is like... My bread and vegan butter, per se. <laughs> you know, so it's quickly, and like even over this month, I was like, yep, solidify that this is like a favorite genre of mine. And like I've slowly over the years watched more and more, and definitely over the last like handful of years. Um, and it's truly one of a kind, and I can't wait to visit it again. You know, I'm really, really pumped about it. You know, a lot of. Even though there's a lot of films within the Italian horror genre that use this kind of stylized violence, beautiful murder set pieces, and our red paint blood, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think they're so full of wonderful, intriguing thematic elements that go well beyond the surface into some truly fascinating films. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to going back and looking more into what Italy has to offer for my favorite genre, which is horror. So I wanted to kind of end my final thought with a quote from Laura Mulvey's Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. And it is, Woman then stands in patriarchal culture as signifier of male other, bound by a symbolic order in which man can live out his fantasies and obsessions through linguistic command by imposing them on the silent image of woman still tied to her place as bearer of meaning, not maker of meaning. So my final thoughts. I, like Kelly, love Italian horror. It was when I first got into watching horror films and getting more engaged with talking about horror films, it was one of the genres that I found myself really attracted to because, like Kelly says, we have this, we have these elements of meaning that appear in these films where we are watching we're, and we're experiencing that we're having an amazing visual experience because of the elegant, spectacular colors set pieces we get this interesting score music that goes along with it and then you have these interesting overemphasized concept and themes in these films but there's a lot of symbol and meaning whether it's be like the use of an eye or the use of a cat or the use of you know certain colors that appear a lot in the film um kelly has talked about in previous podcasts about the whole color spectrum in film and how that is and ends up getting used and what that can mean 
And so that's what I really love about Italian horror. And yeah, sometimes the stories are not, you know, they don't have, uh, they have kind of false plots. So there could be elements of it that can cut down a bit. I watched quite a few over the while, not just Argento, that were really interesting. And I can't wait for us to be able to jump in and talk about giallo horror film, uh, giallo films, because while they are always lumped under into the horror industry or horror genre, they are more, they're mystery thrillers um, with the idea of a mass killer and that you're trying to find out this mystery as behind to why this person's killing a per individual. But I definitely enjoy talking about Italian horror and I really enjoy talking on this podcast and looking at two films that are within the horror genre but they're different elements. One's trying to represent that of a slasher film and one is kind of a bit of a slasher film but more is like trying to be a horror film but still sitting in that like giallo era of that of Argento. So I really appreciate talking about this and talking about these interesting concepts of uh, scopophilia and voyeurism and the differences between them and how these elements, and not just in Italian horror, but it's something that we see throughout all the horror genre, these types of uh, voyeuristic or uh, scop uh, scopophilia behaviors. And then addressing the topic of stylized violence. So horror genre, horror fans, we get a lot of flack about being like, why do you like watching films like that? And oh, because you watch so much horror movies and stuff like that, you're actually going to enact violence on other people. And we're just like, well, no, it's this, this, we don't feel that way at all. And that tends to happen to a lot of people who like films like John Wick or Pulp Fiction or uh, Quentin Tarantino in his films that they're quite violent and why are these actors and these directors making violence look pretty and like Italian horror is just another element of being able to portray an idea and a message to people and it's not you know it's not trying to just make it look pretty it's trying to make it look real in the sense that it looks really pretty but at the end of the day is you're, you're able to detach yourself and from it and be like realize like no no I understand that this is just a movie and I'm not actually actually gonna act in these scenes in life so yeah I was excited about talking about Italian horror and I can't wait to do more research as Kelly and I said we'll jump into knowing more about the you know master of the Italian giallo Argento himself but myself I'm also look interested in looking more into uh, Lucio Fulci known as the godfather of gore and being able to talk more about his films and understand uh, his contribution to the Italian genre. So in terms of that that ends our episode on Italian horror. We want to thank Dance with the Dead for our intro and outro music Robies and Brandon for his work on our promotional materials, and also all you listeners, and we want to remind you to follow us on our website at spinstersofhorror.com, Facebook at spinstersofhorror. We're also on Twitter at Horror Spinsters. Our Instagram is at spinstersofhorror. As well, please rate and review us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, and literally any podcasting app you listen to us on. And as a reminder, we have merch. Please visit Tee Public to purchase our t-shirts and buy stickers from our shop. We also now have a donation button on the main page if you would like to contribute to our cause. Next month, ooh, oh god, we are getting <laughs> super, super spooky for Halloween month with a look at a genre of horror that scares both of us very oh, much, god. very, very much, yes. and that yes. is possession horror. Oh god. <laughs> I'm not sleeping October. Nope. I didn't sleep during Space Horror Month. I'm not sleeping during Possession Horror Month, so that's good. Uh, the movies for discussion will be The Infamous, The Exorcist, and The Last Exorcism. But until then, please remember the future of fear is female. <laughs>